When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So there's a there's a couple of really, I think, interesting topics that I want to discuss today. Uh, but I want to start off with some data. You know, today is, is Thursday, um, the, the day of the, the weekly uh, unemployment report here in the United States. And, and I want to start with some data in that report that, that really backs up what I've been talking about for, for quite some time now. Um, this idea that this this you know slowdown directly related to the coronavirus and the businesses shut down because of it and whatnot is far from over, um, and and that ultimately you know this is going to extend far beyond just you know June, just beyond May, um, well into to the end of this year into next year, et cetera. Not just because of the coronavirus though at that point, but because of a, a broader economic you know slowdown because small businesses will be out of business. Uh, because many businesses, such as Boeing, we recently saw cut 12,000 jobs. Many businesses will be cutting um, jobs because of a lack of demand, etc. Right? Uh, but it, we'll, we'll start off with this uh, unemployment report, which you know it's well. The, the headline number is is 2.1 million new uh, unemployment filings, new new jobless claims, I should say, um, which is huge. I mean that is. Massive. I mean, that's massive compared to anything you, you've seen over the past like 10 years. That's a huge number. Now, if you want to find a silver lining in this number today, um, I'll give you two. Okay, first of all, the trend has been that jobless claims have been declining since its peak, you know, several, several weeks ago, you know, just shy of 7 million in a single week, right? It's been declining since then, right? You know, last week it was, you know, what, uh, 2.5 to 2.4, and today it's 2.1 million. You know, that's positive, I guess, but it's still a massive number, 2.1 million jobless claims, especially since we're, you know, you know, 10, 12 weeks, whatever, into this this um, lockdown-related, you know, part of this, this recession or depression. You know, the other silver lining would be that the continuing claims, which you could argue maybe has a better representation of just how many people are to work, has uh, declined week over week. Basically, what that shows is that there were a lot of people that had been, you know, claiming unemployment or jobless claims. And, and now some of them are no longer, you know, on that list because they've gone back to work. And it's, you know, it's a pretty decent number. You know, it's in the ballpark of almost 4 million. However, context is important. Um, during the peak of the Great Recession, you know the continuing claims number was you know in the ballpark of six you know to seven million, maybe a little over seven million. At, you know, currently though um, it stands uh, over twenty million, over twenty one million actually. Um, so still a massive number for context, and still many many weeks away before we even get to the peak of the Great Recession. You know, if this trend were to to somehow continue, and that's hardly a sure thing. Um, it's 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 massive, you know, the amount of destruction to the economy that's that's occurring right now, and what's crazy, <laughs> the crazy thing about it, is that the stock market is up right now. Now, I mean, that's not a surprise. Like, how many times have I and so many other analysts and, and podcasters and, and YouTube channels, etc., come on and said, 
well, you know, jobs data is just terrible. You know, we got the, the another revision to quarter one GDP, negative 5%. You know, we have all this terrible data, and yet, you know, the, the Dow's up. How, how can we reconcile those two, you know, data points? And, of course, a, a lot of it comes down to the Fed and their monetary stimulus, their, their liquidity injections. You know, back in January and before that, you know, before the coronavirus is really a big thing, what was it that I was, I was always saying? I mean, the, the stock market is nothing more than a function of credit growth and liquidity. And to some extent, we're, despite the fact that there's going to be a lot of defaults, a lot of, of, of bankruptcies, et cetera, which, I mean, that by default, by default, is, is signifying um, some sort of, you know, destruction of, of, of credit, I guess, because, you know, there's debts that are owed that are being wiped out, right? Despite that, there's still a massive growth in credit right now. I mean, think of all the businesses and individuals that may be increasing the amount of debt they owe because of this slowdown. Um, and then, of course, there's the, well, there's the federal government, which is massively increasing its its debt right now. And liquidity. I mean, the Fed has been injecting massive amounts of liquidity into the financial system for weeks now, for months. So maybe it is just a function of that. Now, does that mean that the stock market's going to go up forever? I, I don't think so. Um, I, I want to, however, take some time to, to, to unpack this idea of, I don't know, maybe maybe it's it's a facet of the inflation versus deflation argument. If the Fed is pumping so much money, printing so much money, how come we're not worried more about inflation? How come we're not seeing more inflation right now? Well, maybe it's because of deflation, because jobless numbers and, and unemployment and, and bankruptcies and defaults and, and all that is you know deflationary. It's this whole deflation, inflation debate. And, and you know by default, I think a lot of people where they fall on this is, well, deflation now, but inflation, lots of inflation later. However, you know, there is one guy, and I don't want to fully mischaracterize his stance and say that he's not anticipating some amount of inflation in the future, but there is one guy in particular, among others, I'm sure, that don't necessarily hold that viewpoint, that this may be deflation and dollar strength, dollar shortage, um, long term here, and that may be the big downfall. Now, maybe it all ends in inflation, anyways. The Fed overshoots, and, and they just print way too much money. But but that, the, the guy I'm referring to here is Ra- Raul Powell. Um, now he he tweeted something. This was five days ago now, and, and I'll actually just read it off for you real quick here because he tweets these types of things from time to time. He's an incredibly bright guy when it comes to these markets, and I I find it hard to disagree with a lot of what he says in many of these tweets. Now I'll start here. Quote the dollar standard. The U.S. economy fell from 40% of world GDP in 1960 to just 25% today. However, 79.5% of all world trade is conducted in U.S. dollars. 84% of all non-domestic debt globally is U.S. dollar debt. Around $100 trillion of global debts are denominated in U.S. dollars. Total U.S. domestic non-financial debts are $80 trillion and rising fast. The Fed balance sheet is currently $7 trillion. If this recession is morphing into a global solvency event, which by definition is a slow, miserable grind, not a shock and awe event, which is a liquidity event, then the current strategy of the Fed trying to stave off debt impairment is near impossible. But they will try and, haha, the money printer will go burr. But the dollar will continue to rise as demand for dollars rise. 
And that in turn slows global growth, making the dollar shortage worse and the solvency crisis worse as cash flows fall globally, which makes dollar in even short supply. So the Fed will print more money to try to replace cash flows via fiscal stimulus. Velocity of money falls as money is hoarded in hoarded. All other central banks print more money to offset their own systemic strains. Dollar rises since $1 of QE from the ECB is worth $4 in liquidity-adjusted terms as $1 from the Fed. The Fed can't win, and that in turn slows global growth, making the dollar shortage worse and the solvency crisis worse. I know this is – he repeats himself there um, for that next tweet, what I just – you know the whole process there. And then he finishes up with repeat ad infinitum until system finally breaks, then figure out a new non-US dollar denominated currency system. This is not a low probability outcome, but it's clearly not a certainty either, but I give it a higher odds than most do. And, and you know, he, he goes on about some other things. He, he does finish by saying, you know, look, Bitcoin and gold are kind of the big winners in this. But, the, you know, the point of what he's saying is that, yes, maybe there's some destruction of the dollar and inflation at the end, but along the way, it's going to be dollar strength, dollar shortage, dollar strength, dollar shortage, and the Fed is going to fight it with with all that they can. And 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 it's an interesting viewpoint, you know, maybe another flavor of the deflation and then inflation or deflation and then the dollar's gone type of argument. I don't know, maybe. Um, but... I, I, I find it interesting how many people are totally, you know, that this type of thinking that Raul Powell is going down here is is what you'd call, you know, high level thinking, right? He he knows a thing or two about markets. He knows a thing or two about, you know, the dollar and 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 you know how stimulus from the Fed is different from stimulus from the ECB. Um, how dollar-denominated debts globally, plus you know dollar-denominated debts in the United States, could potentially lead to this dollar shortage problem that that Raúl Powell talks about. Uh, I'm sure Jeff Schneider, Jeff Schneider from Alhambra, has talked about. Um, um, I'm sure Brent Santiago um, has, has uh, not Brent, Brent Johnson from Santiago. Uh, he's talked about it. You know the, this type of dollar shortage or this dollar scarcity. Um, move into the dollar, etc. You know, they've all talked about them in the past, which again, you know, flies in the face of this idea of money printer go burr. And of course, you know, when the money printer goes burr, the value of the dollar goes down. Now, what's, what's really interesting about this, and I'm not going to call him right or wrong, but I think, you know, there's, he's making a very strong argument here. The idea that there's a lot of dollar denominated debt that cannot be necessarily just papered over by, by um, the euro dollar system, or, or the Fed itself, that's a, that's a strong argument. However, lately, we, we've seen a really interesting trend in the markets. You know, if, if, if that's what people are betting on or whatever, I'm sure there's people out there like Raul Pell that are you know, following that type of, of line of thinking and positioning accordingly. However, in the past you know, couple months, since this coronavirus stuff has really you know, moved on. There's been a lot of people just staying at home from work or just having extra spending money or whatever. We have seen um, the emergence of, of an incredible amount of, I don't know what you, I guess, call um, retail investors, at-home traders. I don't know what you call them, newbies. You know, there's this article from Business Insider written by Lynette Lopez, uh, titled opinion it's a perfect storm of stupid in the stock market right now and 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 she mentions here according to financial times 
780,000 um, individuals have created accounts at the three of the four largest brokerages in the U.S., Charles Schwab, E-Trade, and Interactive Brokers. Um, I, and I would, I would gander guess that um, Robinhood, the, the free trading app on, you can get on your smartphone, probably has many, many, many new new um, traders that have joined in the, you know, since all this coronavirus stuff started. And, and to call... Um, maybe some of these traders naive to many of much of these di- discussions could be an understatement, and and that's not to pride ourselves on knowing. Why. I'm not trying to act you know prideful or boastful or or anything like that. I'm simply saying that you know there's a lot of investors, um, which I suppose you, you know, newbies, retail investors, whatever, just individuals trading on their own. That have flooded into the market, and, and you can see this data from from you know, for instance, Robinhood. They show, you know, the amount of people that are holding you know different companies um, over time. For instance, American Airlines or or Hertz, uh, the the car rental company that that filed for bankruptcy last Friday. Uh, many other companies that have um, have done really poorly in this recession. Or have filed for bankruptcy. He'd seen huge drops in their stock price. A lot of these retail investors just buying the dip, buying the dip like like um, we're still in 2019, right? And uh, I mean, ultimately, and, and what you're seeing in opposition to that is um, a lot of big money investors and firms and hedge funds and whatnot oftentimes selling those same stocks as they decline in value. Um, moving from, I don't know if you want to call it smart money or whatever, but institutional money into the hands of retail investors. Another term for that potentially could be a bag holder. Now, maybe they're going to turn out to be geniuses. But, but the point of what I'm saying here is that there are hundreds of thousands of newbie investors in the stock market and, and you know other markets, derivatives and bonds and whatnot right now that have very little knowledge of why markets are going up or why they, you know, if you asked a lot of these individuals, why are they buying the Dow or the S&P, or NASDAQ, or Apple, or American Airlines, or Hertz, or whatever right now. I, I can't speak for all of them, but I would be willing to guess that a large number of them, a very large percentage, would say it's because they see value there on the basis that this economy is going to get back to normal in no time, which is a lot different from a lot of institutional money and a lot of you know more seasoned you know investors and whatnot that are saying I'm buying the S and P or Nasdaq or S and uh, Dow or or Boeing or whatever bank stocks because the Fed is injecting liquid into the system and therefore that's bullish, right? Or Apple's doing share buybacks, and that's why I'm going to buy that. I mean, that's that's why a lot of these you know smarter investors um, are are buying these stocks because they have this idea that well, you know what, like the economy, we may be in the deepest recession ever that we've ever been here in the United States. Certainly, the worst since I don't know the Civil War. Um, 
and it may not get better over the next year or two. But that doesn't mean that the stock market can't go up because of the Fed. And I've said that multiple times here. As much as I just am just flabbergasted, and I ain't flabbergasted anymore, just, I don't know. Because I understand the, the mechanics behind it. But when I look at the stock market and I'm just in awe that the Fed can continue to keep it propped up despite all these bearish numbers. It's, it's me basically saying, look, the stock market can go higher. Doesn't mean it will. But it can go higher or it can tread water at current valuations, whatever, despite everything around it falling, which thus you know would be higher and higher valuations if profits are falling and the price of stock is steady. That's, that's a higher and higher valuation over time. It can do that because the Fed, well, because of what I said earlier, it's a function of credit growth and, and liquidity, right? Never mind things like you know, profits um, or or their ability to, to service their debt um, or revenue or cash flow or any of those really important things that are actually, you know, how companies make money or or stay in business never mind those because if you have ample liquidity uh, you know credit growth you know mix in some small business loans or um some other you know bailouts or assistance from the federal government from the federal reserve and voila you have a stock market that goes up despite so many signals saying that it should go down you know if i were to buy stocks right now that would be the basis of it it would be well you know what let's not fight the fed on the stock market and yet there's so many investors out there that are clueless to this, I think. And I could be totally wrong. Maybe they maybe they spend several, several months, you know, immersing themselves in this type of talk before they ultimately invest in the stock market. I'm going to guess not. I'm going to guess there's a lot of people with unemployment or stimulus money that are looking to buy the dip in the stock market on the basis that they think the stock market is going up because the economy is going to get back to normal in no time. That GDP, despite the fact that quarter two may be a 30 to 50%, depending, you know, this is zero hedge reporting this, depending on based on different, you know, projections, negative 30 to negative 50% year over year drop in quarter two. Despite that, we're going to get back to normal by quarter three, quarter four. This is long-term value investing. Of course, what if the opposite is true? What if... Um, you know, the Fed doesn't necessarily come to their rescue, maybe doesn't allow the stock market to drop, you know, to, to half of where it is right now in terms of, of price. Um, but maybe, a, you know, three quarters, you know, 25% drop, or a 10, 20% drop, you know, what if a lot of these, you know, Hertz or American Airlines or whatever, what if they don't, you know, fix out their fix their problem because the economy hasn't sorted itself out you know unemployment remains chronically high for a number of years and what if all this value investing is buying into the stock market when a ton of institutional money is selling off not saying all a lot of people aren't but what you know maybe selling a lot of these individual stocks at least hertz or american airlines in the case of berkshire hathaway and warren buffett or what you know what if it's a lot of bag holding Right. Um, that's my uh, it's, not, it's not so much a concern. It's, that's my interpretation of what's going on with a lot of these um, hundreds of thousands of individuals moving into retail. Is that, you know, it's 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 a it's a search for quick returns. 
They have thousands of new dollars to throw around. Maybe they took some out of their 401k, took advantage of some of these new rules, and they decided to open up their own trading account. Hey, if my 401k can, you know, make gains easy and and until they didn't in March, um, then, then why can't I do that, right? Why can't I just buy the stock market? Why can't I buy some of these stocks on the dip on the basis of something some guy on CNBC said about how the economy is going to open up because of what Larry Kudlow and Donald Trump said, that the economy is going to be back to normal in no time. I don't know if they exactly said that, but, you know, they're permaples for their own market. Um, and, and then they're, all, you know, massacred. Or they just they they just don't make the returns they're looking for. They lose twenty percent. They lose thirty percent. Maybe they throw it all into options. I don't know. Maybe they throw it into options. Maybe they, you know, trade derivatives and they lose even more than that. I don't know. It's it's a crazy world. But but going back to you know this this idea of of Raul Pal and and uh, and others like him. You know, you, you can make that argument. You can make it a very compelling inflation argument. You can make an argument based on the stock market going up, not because of the economic recovery, but as I said, central banks and federal government propping up the market, right? You can make an argument on any of those. And and even though you might be totally against everything the Fed is doing, you could still say, I'm, I'm not going to fight the Fed. I'm going to make money on this rally, right? Um, and get out when I can, because there's not value there. Um, but that's higher level thinking. That's that's understanding that the stock market is not the economy. It hasn't been the economy in a long time. And it certainly is the furthest thing from the economy right now. You know, with the stock market. The NASDAQ is the NASDAQ is what? Back to new all-time highs? Or I didn't. Maybe it's back to new um, where it was it, you know, neutral on the year. I'd have to check. Um uh, I'll check it real quick. NASDAQ up 1% today, by the way. Yeah, getting close to to where it was, you know, at the at the peak prior to the big crash. Um, or it's or it's peak back in, yeah, February basically. Um, positive on the year. You know, uh, where, where was I? Um, you know, the NASDAQ or or the S&P or or the Dow Jones um Maybe they're going to continue to rise, uh, but but I don't think we can count on that Fed put indefinitely. And and there's so many individuals going into this because they think that the Nasdaq neutral on the year is somehow representative of the economy when when in reality it's not. It's it's representative of, well, I mean you could say forward looking, but again that forward looking from from my point of view is is just abysmal because of the destruction that's occurred in the global economy in the past few months. Now, you know, the final thing I want to talk about, going back to this Raul Powell character, runs Real Vision or is part of Real Vision. And again, a very bright guy. Um, not to say I always agree with everything he says, but very bright. Um, I did see, actually, there was a, a a bit of a spat on Twitter, an individual that had went after him and, and basically said, look, you and so many other people have basically been perma bears for the last couple months. You've been telling people to sell or, or been positioning bearishly or whatever um you know since march and and look where the stock market is the nasdaq's you know back to neutral or positive on the year and, and the s&p and the dow have recovered very nicely since their you know brief bear market and 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 i guess i don't know for sure where um where raul powell is in terms of his positioning or what he's kind of whatever okay and and i think we have to delineate between technical and long-term view, tactical positioning and long-term view. Obviously, for the last few months, 
being short the stock market was not the place to be. You, you will have lost money if you did that. Um, you could argue that there's, you know, it made perfect sense and we just missed this whole idea of the Fed and their money printing and whatnot. Money printer go burr. And, and, uh, but, but long story short, you know, if you were tactically short over these last few months, you were wrong, you know, since the bottom in March or April or whenever the bottom was, right? You were wrong. It's gone up pretty nicely since then. So tactically speaking, you were wrong. Now, if you're tactically saying right now you should be short, that's a different argument. That's a different, you know, we don't know what's going to happen the next week, the next month, the next quarter. Uh, stocks could go down. And, and your tactical short, your, your call that short term to, you know, next couple months, the stock market's going to go down. You could turn out right and and great okay but but that's a that, that's kind of the the idea behind being a you know a, an asset manager or an investor is your long-term view may conflict with your short-term view but what ultimately matters is what your positioning is you know to to, to pick on someone you know i don't know peter schiff Euro pacific capital i don't know what their returns have been over the past few years you know, I know they do more than just gold. I don't know. They don't just short the S&P every single day, I'm sure. And they're big into emerging markets. And I get all that. Okay. But, you know, his long-term view, even though I think he is right, his long-term view is right on the dollar, on on, on gold, silver, um, the market, the economy, etc. Even though I think he's right, he's, you know, kind of been spouting that long-term view for a long time. And I imagine that a lot of people that mistake that for his short-term positioning. The two have to be delineated. I can think that the Fed is going to inflate the dollar so much that it's going to absolutely destroy the U.S. economy. And yet, short-term, I could be long the stock market because money printer go burr, at least right now, is a positive for the stock market. However, I think... One of the important things that we have to understand here is that with people like Raul Powell, or I think some other people that were called out was like a, um, George Gammon. Um, gosh, there's other ones as well that I, um, yeah. Uh, there's plenty of perma, and I mean perma bears, but people that have very bearish outlooks over the next five years for the U.S. and for the global economy, or you know, much of the global economy. A lot of very bearish individuals, and I'm sure I could list ten for you. You know probably much of the zero hedge writing staff i don't know maybe not um but certainly uh certainly you could add raul powell to that list i know brent johnson long term is probably not very bullish you know luke roman would be another um, i think eric townsend probably is not very bullish long term on on the u.s stock market i don't know he, he gets the whole fed thing too you know there's a lot of people that get the whole fed and the liquidity and the credit growth aspect of it as well but at some point you know what goes up you know, must come down to the whole story of, of what is it, Icarus, you know, flying close, too close to the sun. Um, however, what, what we have to understand, the point of what I'm, come on, spit it out here, Matt. The point of what I'm saying here is that w the game's not over. Um, even if you're Peter Schiff and you've been saying that the economy or the dollar's on the verge of collapse since 2010 or 2011. I know he was saying it before that, but I wanted to pick a point of time, you know, after the Great Recession. Even if you've been saying it since then and you still have been wrong, you can still make an argument that the game's not over yet. 
that we're not, you know, the, the last pitch in this baseball game has not been thrown yet. The buzzer in this basketball game hasn't sounded yet, right? That things can change. And if your long-term view, like Raul Powell, is that, um, you know, there's going to be this massive dollar shortage, this this dollar squeeze because of the massive amount of dollar-denominated debt around the world that's going to, you know, be extremely bearish for the global economy, and it's going to lead to a move away from the U.S. dollar system, then, hey, we're only maybe in the fifth inning of this game. If that, right? We're still have plenty of baseball to be played still. Um, and uh, and that can still come true. Now, I mean, obviously, if you're telling people, hey, you know, this is where I'm positioned. I'm positioned short the stock market and the stock market has been going up in that period of time. You're wrong. I mean, you're wrong short term. And that's, you know, what counts when it talks about when you're talking about money. Um, but but if you can say, you know, short term, I'm bullish or I'm long the stock market, but long term, for reasons A, B, and C, I'm bearish. Well, there's still, as I said, a lot of baseball still to be played. And that's sort of where I'm at. I mean, the, the writing has been on the wall for the U.S. economy long before I even started this podcast, Right. The U.S., the global economy. We've seen this story before. I mean, heck, I, I saw somebody on Twitter. Gosh, I spend too much time on Twitter. But hey, these conflicting viewpoints, is, it's, it can be helpful. Um, there was a, uh, an account. What was it? I think it was like Fiat Money. I think that was the title of it. And he was advocating. And, and I'm almost thinking, you know, is this guy trolling? But he was advocating for a higher deficit. You know, he goes on this whole almost MMT type um, line of thinking, I'm sure, this idea that a a deficit at the federal level is a surplus at the private level, that corporations and, and individuals, you know, the economy benefits from this deficit. Now, the, the counter to that argument is, well, you know, who's buying all that debt? Could that money be used in a more constructive manner? And, you know, what happens when, you know, the, the demand for that debt runs out? When yields go up, or when when demand domestically or globally goes down, or just isn't there to to meet this ever rising deficit, ultimately what happens then is then well the Fed has to monetize that debt. They buy that debt, or else yields rocket higher, and everybody loses their money. Uh, not everyone, but but you know the value of the bonds goes down significantly, and uh, you know inflation ultimately occurs as a result of that. You know, um, but. You know, there's this there's this account, fiat money, who's advocating for just that. You know, that, that we just need more money printing, right? And uh it's nuts. Like I said, it's it's almost like is this guy trolling? But but I know that there's a lot of people that hold that viewpoint that deficits are not a bad thing. You know, he even you know pulled some data out that, you know, every time that the US tried to pay off some debt or decrease the deficit, we have a recession pretty soon afterwards. Which he's probably right that yeah hey guess what that's that's not an indication that deficits are great for the U.S. economy all the time, and at any level, that's an indication that a huge amount of the U.S. economy is basically exists on the basis of increasing the national debt or consumer or corporate debt, right? But that long term that that is a terrible, terrible plan. Again, we've seen this story before. We've seen this story before in different flavors, maybe in different times before modern banking in Rome, 
in France, in wherever, um, where where you just run deficit after deficit after deficit, and it it ultimately, for a long time, it looks like just stimulus after stimulus. This could go on forever, um, but it doesn't. You know, look at China. China is a textbook example of this right now. You know, we're dealing with the worst global recession, again, in a very long time, probably since World War II. You know, I said the United States worst since the Civil War. But, but globally, you know, World War II between what happened in China, Japan, Russia, Western and Eastern Europe and, and Africa and elsewhere is pretty bad. You know, but the U.S. left you know, relatively, I don't want to say unscathed, but, you know, relatively good shape obviously. Um, but, but globally, this is the worst since, since World War II, most likely. And yet, China, and I mentioned this, in, I think, my Monday's podcast, China is one of the few countries out there that is not engaging in widespread stimulus. I mean, I, I, I'll rephrase that. The magnitude of their stimulus is not what one would expect relative to what China has done over the last 10 years. You know, as I always remind you, my, my listeners of this, you know, following the Great Recession, there's all this, well, look what the Fed did, the U.S. government, their bailouts, um, quantitative easing, and of course, what the ECB, the Bank of Japan, Bank of England, look what they did. That is my evidence for why bailouts and stimulus and QE and low interest rates work. The global economy pulled itself up by its bootstraps and recovered because of their actions, which I would counter with without the actions of China and massive credit growth that occurred from 2008 onwards or 2009 or whatever. Um, without that, the global economy would, would not have recovered. It would have been one massive stagnation event. And yet China chose to create this huge stimulus, huge amount of debt, huge amount of credit growth, over a 10-year period. And this, and they created basically an addiction. I shouldn't say not quite a 10-year period. Um, sometime around 2016, probably 17, maybe 18, you know, China came out and they basically said, um, they, they, made, they started talking about their worries about this, this basically addiction to debt. The problem they were faced with is that as they grew this credit more and more, it did less and less. It created less and less stimulus. You know, the idea is early on, $1 of debt creation, you know, equals $1 of GDP growth. But then over time, you know, it takes $2 or 3 or 50 or $100 of, of debt growth to create that much GDP, right? And that was a problem China was running into. Now, the story wasn't over. I mean, as soon as they said that, it wasn't like they just stopped with stimulus, Um there's multiple time periods after that where China chose to inject a large amount of stimulus into their economy to keep things afloat. A lot of it was related to the trade war and some slowdowns related to that. And, uh, you know, despite them saying that, hey, maybe we should be careful about this, this addiction to debt that we have, they, they continued anyways. However, this time around, with the worst of anything we've seen over the last 10 or you know, 70 years, Somebody check me on my math there. Yeah, 70 plus years since since World War II. The worst we've seen in a long time. China has been not absent, but the magnitude of their stimulus has been far less than what you'd expect relative to what they did in 2008, 2009, 2010, or 15, 16, or anything like that. 
I think even 2018 or 19, there was a lot of stimulus as well. I think early 2019. Somebody check my numbers on that. Um, they haven't been doing a whole lot. Now, why is that? You could make some argument that this is a geopolitical thing, that they're trying to ruin the global economy because they want Trump out of the White House. You could say that they're trying to crush all these other economies so that they can emerge victorious. You could make a lot of those arguments, and there's some merit to it, I'm sure. You could also say that, hey, China's done this in the past where they try and go without stimulus, but ultimately they pull those levers anyways. They cry uncle and they they inject credit. They stimulate things anyways, right? You could also make the argument that they're letting other central banks and governments do the work for them. However, what we've seen lately, and, and I'll remind you, China's dealing with a massive recession of their own that predates what started in the United States because their shutdown started a lot earlier. What we're seeing in China right now is a potential major devaluation of their currency, devaluation of the yuan relative to you know the dollar and, and you know in theory every other currency around the world. Um, and, and that could potentially signify that their debt load has become too high and that they need to, you know, devalue their currency, which would be akin to, to sort of a deleveraging, you know, their debt load is not as bad if, if their currency is weaker, at least their debt load in their own currency. Um, and they're also signifying that, Hey, maybe we shouldn't just blow up our balance sheets again create all this debt because we you know our debt gdp is already at a massive level consumer corporate and and government debt in china is north of 300 percent debt to gdp i think it in quarter one i want to say it increased 17 percent i think that was the statistic i was talking about on monday 17 percent you know year over year that's um somebody did that 68 percent growth year over year debt to gdp that's massive. I mean, in five years, you're well over 300% at that pace. That's not sustainable, right? Quarter two could potentially be even higher relative to, you know, how the global economy and how the Chinese economy has performed since then, right? That's not sustainable. And they know that that's going to lead to a massive devaluation of their yuan, probably much larger than what they want. You know, um, that is circling back to this whole idea of stimulus and, and, and how debt creation just always works until it doesn't. Until all of a sudden you realize, wow, we're creating all this debt, but we seem to be getting less bang for our buck. But then at some point, that debt load becomes too large on one front or the other. Either A, we just we have so much capital in our country and our economy that is invested and just stuck in this debt at a low yield. That is not good for an economy, right? When you have you know $25 trillion worth, and I realize it's not all in the U.S., and some of this is you know intergovernmental debt or whatever. Um, you know, Not all that debt is in the United States. There's a lot of foreign investors that buy U.S. debt. But a lot of it has been bought up by U.S. retail, by, by hedge funds, et cetera, in the last, you know, couple of years that at some point i mean that's that's a drain just investing in this low yield stuff um, but also you know what happens when that buyer isn't there anymore so you have that problem of yields going up because the buyer's not there anymore and you know the capital just sitting there but then the other problem is um well when the buyer isn't there anymore the fed has to monetize that 
right? And so now you're doing stimulus to try and stimulate the economy more and more. You're getting less bang for your buck and you're dealing with inflation. That's a problem, right? And all of a sudden, what worked is no longer working anymore. It works until it doesn't. And that's always been the case about stimulus, right? There's not some new theory that suddenly has emerged that somehow, you know, had it emerged during, you know, periods of, of the Roman Empire or, or in France or various other countries that have dealt with similar problems. Um, it's not like once that, that theory emerges that somehow that breaks the laws of economics or breaks certain you know, relationships between assets and, and supply and demand and whatnot, and all of a sudden we can jump over that hurdle. No, that's you can try and financial engineer all you want and you can't overcome you know, some of these interactions, some of these relationships. So I just wanted to, I guess, take some time to talk about that as well. This idea that deficits, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a terrible line of reasoning that ultimately, even though, you know, it goes back into this whole idea of you can be wrong for a long time in that your end game hasn't occurred yet. But that doesn't mean you're wrong, right? Maybe if, if you, your end game is 100 years from now and you're saying it's, it's imminent, for 100 years straight and it doesn't happen until eventually it does, you could say, well, I mean, you were only technically right and, and no. But, you know, if we're talking a couple of years, uh, maybe not foreseeing additional levers being pulled by governments, by central banks the world over, and, and ultimately your end game is right in that, you know, this this Ponzi scheme, this, this, um, this increase in debt and money printing and stimulus is only going to work until it doesn't. If you're right in that, then and I think that's what counts. And, and your positioning long-term has to be according to that. Now, I mean, for me, that's, I mean, precious metals, hard assets, et cetera. Um, maybe different for you. Obviously, don't take any of this as investment advice. Uh, but that's a reminder that, that we've seen time and time again in human history, economic history, that things sound great and they work great until they don't. And, and, we certainly are very close to that period of time where things just stop working as they did in the past. And what once looked to be very beneficial is now detrimental to an economy, to a society, um, to a currency. As always, I'd like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today's podcast and God bless.